our mysterious sister, Venus, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Astrophysicist Javier Peralta has written an outstanding article in the Planetary Report about cloud-shrouded Venus. We will talk with this Spaniard who has lived and worked in Japan for the last five years. We've reached another 50th anniversary. This time it's the Apollo 12 mission and Jason Davis will remind us of its impressive accomplishments. Who had the first meal in space? We'll find out in What's Up. Bruce Betts fooled a lot of you with this installment of the Space Trivia Contest. A special invitation from the Planetary Society is moments away after we sample the week's headlines from around the solar system. NASA plans to launch a water mapping rover to the moon's south pole in 2022. Viper is the Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. It will analyze ice in the moon's permanently shadowed craters using a one-meter-long drill built by Honeybee Robotics. The Planetary Society has helped fund tests of several Honeybee technologies over the years, including Planetary Deep Drill and Planet Vac, both of which we've covered on Planetary Radio. The long struggle of the so-called mole instrument on the InSight Mars lander continues. The little self-hammering probe had appeared to make progress in recent days with help from the craft's robotic arm. Well, it suddenly backed itself out of its hole. I've been told that this behavior has also been seen in the simulations underway at JPL and that the mission team remains hopeful. But it does make me wonder about Martian gophers. And we now know more about yet another roughly spherical asteroid. Hygieia is the fourth largest in the main belt between Mars and Jupiter, with a diameter of about 430 kilometers. It was imaged by the Very Large Telescope, yes, that's its name, in Chile. You can read these stories and more in the downlink, presented by Planetary Society Editorial Director Jason Davis. It's at planetary.org downlink. Kate Howells is another of my colleagues with a lot on her plate. Her latest dream project is one we can all participate in. She introduced me to it as I was pulling together this week's episode. Kate, I love this new opportunity, not just for our members, but for everybody, right? But, but I got it because I'm a member of the Planetary Society. I got email from you just yesterday as we speak. Tell us about this uh, Space Goals project. Yeah, so this project was actually inspired by bird watching. People who are avid bird watchers can subscribe to a life list where they keep track of all the different birds they've seen and they can get ideas for birds in their area that they might try to find. So we wanted to do a similar thing with space experiences, different things that as a space enthusiast you might want to experience or that you might have already experienced. So we want to build a way for you to get new ideas for things you can do to enrich your experience as a space enthusiast and a way to track those things that you have done throughout your life. Keep track of how much of a space fan you are. And this is, as I read it, not just a way to talk about things that you hope to do, but things that other people might be able to uh, take on as well. Yeah, exactly. So the way that we're building this 
big catalog of space experiences is by crowdsourcing it. So we're turning to our community, our members and our supporters, our listeners, our viewers, anybody who is tuned in to the Planetary Society, anybody who is interested in space can submit their ideas. So we're hoping to really get a lot of submissions from around the world of things that are easy to do in your backyard, like looking at the moon through binoculars, ranging all the way to things that are once in a lifetime experiences that you might have to travel to experience or uh, pay some money to, to do things like that. How can people get in on this? So if you go to planetary.org slash space goals, you will be able to submit your ideas. The form lets you submit up to three, but you can do the same form over and over again and submit as many as you'd like <laughs> for those who are really keen. Over the course of the next year, we're going to look through all of the submissions and finalize the sort of ultimate catalog and release that publicly to our members and to, to anybody who's interested um, sometime next year. But it's going to be this, this long process to really carefully put together what we think is going to be the ultimate list of space life goals. You have to have expected that I would ask you for your, at least your top three. Uh, have you filled one out yet? I have, yes. Some of the best experiences that I've already had include seeing Saturn's rings through a telescope. That was one of my yeah. earliest influential space experiences. Me too. And of course, going to see light sail launch on a Falcon Heavy rocket. I mean, I know that's a once in a lifetime experience, but going and seeing a rocket launch in person is definitely something I would recommend that every real diehard space fan try to do at some point in their life. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> As for aspirations, I have always wanted to travel far enough north to see the Aurora Borealis. I live in Canada, so I don't have to go too, too far, but I never have seen that. So that's definitely on my space life goals list. Can I share mine? Absolutely, please. These are just a few examples. Now, I, I would have to include that Falcon Heavy launch and then getting the first signal back from LightSail. So yeah, one of a kind, I know, but everybody really owes themselves uh, a rocket launch, a big rocket launch, at least once in their life. I always think of the trip that I made to uh, Chile, uh, to the Atacama Desert, where we visited the um, Alma Array, but much closer to home and something that uh, anybody, and particularly you folks who are already amateur astronomers or maybe professional astronomers, I remember when I, I think I was nine or so and got my first view of Saturn through a telescope, just like you. But now, uh, I love sharing it. I love going to where there are young people or adults, many of whom inevitably have never looked through a telescope and showing them our solar system and the wonders of the cosmos for the first time. There is really nothing like it. Uh, I hope to keep doing that for a long time to come. Mm, that's a good one. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. And thank you for this great new project. Uh, what's that URL again? Planetary.org slash space goals. All right. Easy enough. Check it out. And uh, we look forward to seeing your space goals, your space dreams, your space memories uh, in this uh, new service by the Planetary Society. Thanks a lot, Kate. Thank you. Kate Howells is the Planetary Society's Communication Strategy and Canadian Space Policy Advisor. Onward to Jason Davis, who has just prepared a tribute to the Apollo 12 mission. It will be announced publicly on November 13th, the day before the 50th anniversary of the launch. But... Shh, don't tell anyone, but you planetary radio listeners 
can get early access at planetary.org slash Apollo 12. They weren't the first to the moon, but they were the second to the moon. That's still pretty exciting. And I'm glad that we're going to, actually, that we already have this tribute to the Apollo 12 astronauts. I wonder, I wonder how they feel about being the second crew. Um, you know, I know Buzz Aldrin doesn't like being referred to uh, the second uh, man to walk on the moon. Wonder how they feel about it. But yeah, I think uh, in my book, that's that's pretty good. Number three and four on the moon is good in my book. <laughs> Absolutely, and only twelve who made it down to the surface at all. And we should include the command module pilot. Tell us a little bit about the you know the basics of this uh, second very successful flight to the moon that that got off to kind of a, a scary start. Let's let's start with that scary start. So um, it, it launched uh, 50 years ago uh, on November 14th, 1969. They launched into kind of a, a rainy overcast skies um, and the, the Saturn V got struck by lightning twice during ascent. This had the effect of knocking out their attitude control indicators. So they were essentially flying blind, at least from their perspective. It knocked power from their fuel cells over to batteries. So they were having quite a few problems um, as they're <laughs> riding to orbit. Luckily, the Saturn V has its own independent instrumentation that kept flying the vehicle and you know, blasting them onto orbit, even though the crew essentially didn't know what was going on. This was a pretty famous incident in which one of the uh, flight controllers knew what was going on and recommended the crew make this obscure um, switch flip. Uh, and he said, try SCE to OX. I've mm. actually seen that printed on t-shirts. I don't know if you've, uh, you know, <laughs> pretty obscure space fact, but try uh, SCE to OX was the command that restored power or eventually helped get things back on track. Uh, and they made it to orbit, checked for more damage, and um, ended up being okay and heading on to the moon. But they were moments from getting to be the first to not just test, but actually rely on uh, that escape system, right? It was pretty close. Um, if they hadn't been able to restore power to those fuel cells and um, you know get their attitude control system back online, it was very possible that uh, the folks in Houston would have uh, triggered it aboard to bring them back. Wow. Fairly uneventful from then on, uh, on their way to the moon? Yeah, yeah. So they, uneventful, uh, went to lunar orbit. Pete Conrad uh, was the commander. Um, Richard Gordon was the command module pilot who, who stayed behind. Uh, and Alan Bean was the other astronaut who, uh, it was Bean and Conrad who went down to the surface. Yeah, they, they landed without incident. Uh, they landed in the ocean of storms. That's the huge uh, dark region you can see from Earth, um, Ocean Ellis Procolarum, I think is maybe how it's pronounced in uh, Latin, but uh, but yeah, they landed Easy without for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and getting to the spot where they wanted to land, this is a great story in itself that you tell on this uh, Apollo 12 page. Yeah, this was one of my favorite uh, pieces of Apollo trivia that uh, I don't think is well known. Um, and it just so happened that uh, when I was in grad school, I met the guy responsible for some of this. Essentially, during Apollo 11, uh, as most of us know, Neil Armstrong had to kind of take semi-manual control of the lander and dodge a bunch of boulders and a crater because the computer was bringing them into a, um, a, a bad spot. They ended up landing quite a bit downrange, about six kilometers away from where they'd hoped. Now, 
NASA knew that they needed that ability. They needed to be able to demonstrate a pinpoint landing land right where they say they were going to, because for future Apollo crews, um, they wanted to go to some harder to reach scientific destinations. They knew they wouldn't be able to do that unless they were able to demonstrate this pinpoint landing. But the question is, how do you know you've landed right where you intend to land? So they needed a known point on the lunar surface where they could target. Now, fortunately, a, a couple of years before that, there was this lunar scientist. His name was Ewan Whitaker. Uh, unfortunately, he's passed away now. But I had a chance to work with him when I was in grad school doing this um, documentary called Desert Moon. Ewan was very meticulous, and he had managed to find NASA's Surveyor 1 spacecraft after it landed. In fact, the coordinates for Surveyor 1 were published in uh, an academic journal. I think it was Science or something like that. And Ewan uh, looked at that work and decided that NASA was wrong, essentially. He republished his own results of where Surveyor 1 or where he thought it would be, sent them off to NASA, and NASA looked at it again and said, you know, I, I think this guy's right. He's got the correct location here. Hmm. So when Surveyor 3 landed, uh, and this would have been 1967, NASA came to Ewan once again and said, hey, can you help us find Surveyor 3 on the surface? So he... He looked at pictures from the lander. He looked at aerial photography. Well, not aerial, I guess. Um, orbital photography. <laughs> <laughs> no yeah. air around the moon. He looked at orbital photography from the Lunar Orbiter spacecraft, and he was able to figure out exactly where Surveyor 3 landed. And this was a colossal task back then. You know, we didn't have all the modern digital ways of looking yeah. at maps of the moon. He's working on print, has all this stuff laid out on a table. He found exactly where Surveyor 3 was, gave NASA the coordinates. And so when it came time for Apollo 12, NASA said, hey, this is perfect. We know exactly where Surveyor 3 is. Let's have the Apollo 12 astronauts land next to Surveyor 3, and that will ultimately show that we can um, do these pinpoint landings. That's what they did. Uh, Bean and Conrad touched down. They were about 160 meters away from Surveyor 3. Um, it was perfect. They popped out on their first EVA, and um, there's actual audio of them saying, hey, look, it's Surveyor, and they were excited to see it. Yeah, it's just one of those neat little um, stories from the Apollo program and a, a scientist who helped make that happen. It is a great accomplishment, a great bit of history, and, and what a legacy for uh, for this fellow that you actually got to interact with. Uh, and there were other advantages, because I know they went over and they took pieces off a of surveyor, right? And they got to bring him back home and see what spending two years on the moon uh, did to a piece of machinery. Yeah, yeah. Engineers were really excited about the chance to actually bring home a piece of something that had spent that long in space. Uh, so they brought home the TV camera and uh, were able to look at the gears and mechanisms and see how well it had held up. And interestingly, they did find bacteria deep inside the camera. They published some initial results and said, hey, it looks like bacteria survived in space for two years. Um, then some later studies were done and said, well, are you really sure that this you know, wasn't contamination once we brought it back to Earth? So the results ended up being kind of ambiguous, but um, it was still a, a really useful exercise for them to be able to visit the spacecraft. I'm going with life finds a way. All right, so so they they wander around a little bit. They pick up uh, some moon rocks and these these two uh, moon walks that they made, and then they come home and uh, they're celebrated though not quite at the level of the Apollo 11 astronauts. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there were uh, ticker tape parades uh, all across the United States for them like the way they did for Apollo 11. But uh, hey, still a pretty cool accomplishment in my book. And, uh, you know, they really paved the way for um, the rest of the Apollo missions uh, to go to more ambitious places and do uh, a lot better scientific studies of the moon's surface. 
So that's Apollo 12. Next up, things get much more exciting once again. Jason, I look forward to talking to you about Apollo 13. Sounds good. We'll do it next year. That's Jason Davis, the editorial director for the Planetary Society, and uh, we will talk again on that anniversary, although very likely much sooner than that as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll visit Mysterious Venus. I know you're a fan of space because you're listening to Planetary Radio right now. But if you want to take that extra step to be not just a fan, but an advocate, I hope you'll join me, Casey Dreyer, the chief advocate here at the Planetary Society, at our annual Day of Action this February 9th and 10th in Washington, D.C. That's when members from across the country come to D.C. and meet with members of Congress face-to-face and advocate for space. To learn more, go to planetary.org slash dayofaction. We recently visited with Vishnu Reddy, author of that great article about planetary defense in the Planetary Report, the quarterly magazine from the Planetary Society that is edited by Emily Lakdawalla. The other major article in our September Equinox edition comes from astrophysicist Javier Peralta. Spanish-born Javier works for JAXA, the Japanese space agency, with most of his time devoted to the Venus-orbiting Akatsuki, He's in the forefront of our efforts to understand the complex and still mysterious Venusian atmosphere that features winds that whirl around the planet at 300 kilometers or 200 miles per hour, much, much faster than the planet rotates. I invited Javier to join us for a conversation about what some still call Earth's sister world. Javier, thanks very much for joining me. I I know that... um, This is not the most convenient setup for you. I mean, here it's late afternoon in Southern California, but for you, it's uh, it's still uh, the morning in Japan, the wonders of uh, living on opposite sides of a globe. But I'm very happy to have you on the show, and thank you for this terrific article in the Planetary Report. Oh, thank you so much to you also, also to Emily, uh, because she also helped uh, a lot for making the making the article, uh, at least correcting a bit, my, uh, you know, my, my English because I'm Spanish. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful that she's able to bring so many great researchers uh, to us in the Planetary Report and uh, elsewhere through uh, the other work that she does on our behalf. I got to tell you, when I got my first telescope, I was maybe 10 years old. I turned it on all the usual suspects, the moon, Jupiter, Saturn, Mars. But Venus, though it became a good-sized disk in the eyepiece of my little telescope, was really pretty boring, Uh, featureless, sort of yellowish-white ball. For centuries, that was pretty much all anybody saw of the planet. We've made a little progress in the last 50 years or so, though, haven't we? Uh, yeah, no, in fact, uh, in fact, we didn't start to see details uh, until the, the beginning of the 20th century when we started to, to spot Venus uh, in ultraviolet wavelengths. That's when we start to see details. Uh, before that, it was uh, yeah nearly impossible to see anything. But uh, there were some efforts before starting to spot them in ultraviolet. If I remember, if I remember well, uh, I think there was a paper, uh, no, not a paper, but a book uh, about observation of Venus uh, published by uh, an astronomer called uh, Bianchini in 18th century. It is amazing how much efforts they try to, to see details and try to measure uh, uh, winds or seeing the surface uh, at the time. Well, it's not surprising. I, I remember as a kid, before we knew that at least at the surface, Venus is not a very friendly place to life as we know it. A lot of science fiction being placed uh, on Venus. There was a, a a movie, a film version 
of uh, Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man, and it depicted the surface of Venus as a jungle, a tropical jungle with uh, huge creatures, uh, which would be nice, but not much re- relationship to reality there. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I suppose in passing, we should mark the the tremendous success of those Soviet Union probes uh, led by the Venera series, which did manage to survive on the surface for uh, substantial amounts of time. Even though you mentioned the Pioneer Venus mission, which uh, had some success with an orbiter and and sending probes down through the atmosphere and, and even to the surface, it's really, oddly enough, the Galileo mission, which was on its way to Jupiter, but made a brief visit at Venus that that you point to in the article is beginning to deliver some good uh, data or the best data to that point uh, about the Venus atmosphere. In terms of uh, atmospheric dynamics, that is my speciality, it was the first time that uh, we have three-dimensional observations of the clouds of Venus, thanks to Galileo, to the filters of the camera SSI, and also uh, the imaging spectrograph called uh, NIMS, uh, that also made observation f- uh, for the night side of, of Venus. Uh, combining these instruments, uh, we, we were able to observe uh, several layer, layers of the atmosphere, several layers of the, of the clouds, mainly of the clouds. And it was the first time we had have the chance to make tracking of these uh, cloud features and, and measure the winds at different levels. It was the, let's say, the first uh, three-dimensional characterization of the winds of Venus. Hmm. Then, of course, Magellan, which did such a great job of uh, revealing the surface of uh, Venus with its uh, with its powerful radar. But really, if you jump forward to Venus Express, which um, the spacecraft that you're involved with, Akatsuki, the Japanese explorer, the only one that's active right now in orbit above Venus, it was hoped that you'd be there at the same time that uh, Venus Express was still doing its work, right? Uh, yeah, that was a pity that uh, that Akatsuki didn't make it on time uh, because of the problem they the, they have in the spacecraft with the with the thruster. Akatsuki was not able to uh, get inserted uh, and make coordinated observation with Venus spray that would have been great. But still, pretty heroic work by uh, the engineers behind the Akatsuki mission, and it is certainly doing wonderful work now. Is it providing? the best data about Venus's atmosphere that we've been able to gather so far? Yes, but not as good as the one predicted. Uh, the orbit of Akatsuki was going to be different uh, because of this incident. It was successful. Uh, the, the engineer, the female engineer that uh, designed these strategies is called uh, Hirose-san. She was here considered like a hero because uh, she was able to recover the, the mission for, for uh, JAXA. Right now, we have an equatorial orbit, uh, but not with the spatial resolution in the images that uh, uh, the instruments were designed for. Well, nevertheless, great science coming back. Let's talk about some of the science that you review uh, in this uh, Planetary Report article. You begin with uh, a mystery. Venus, very slowly rotating planet, and yet it has these uh, Category 9 hurricane winds. Do we have some idea of how these are being generated? Oh, this is one of the <laughs> of the long time mysteries about Venus. Of course, I will. I, I wish I, I have an idea. Uh, that's what we we are trying to figure out <laughs> for decades. The super rotation of Venus. We are trying now to uh, figure out uh, one of the key points that is uh, to know how this super rotation is is fed. There was a recent work published uh, by Yu Yuli, 
She's a Korean girl who uh, was uh, working here in Akatsuki Mission, in Akatsuki Mission 2. And uh, she made a nice work combining data from uh, Venus Express and Akatsuki to cover as much as possible for the albedo of the ultra, of the clouds in ultraviolet wavelengths. What she discovered is that the, the albedo of Venus has been changing during the last 10 years. And just to remind our audience, the albedo, that basically the how much light Venus reflects. Oh, yes, exactly, yeah, exactly yes. That in ultraviolet, it reflects a huge amount of, of, uh, of light. We a long time suspected that the energy provided by the sun through the heating of the of the clouds and atmosphere, was uh, feeding energy to this super rotation. What Yu uh, uh, discovered is that uh, it seems that the albedo, the amount of, of light that the, the atmosphere is reflecting, is variable uh, along along the time, and also uh, the strength of the super rotation fed by the uh, solar tides. So uh, we have for the first time pretty nice uh, clue that seems to indicate that the periodic heating of the sun on the clouds of Venus is uh, providing some uh, important energy to, to the super rotation. Very interesting. I want to bring up something else that you mentioned, and, and this is an especially curious, mysterious component of, of the highest clouds. In fact, you call it the mysterious absorber. What do you mean by this? Oh, <laughs> I didn't call that. Okay, but I took the name from, of course, previous papers. <laughs> there is no easy way to, to call it. Uh, yes, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, we started to see things on the clouds when we observe Venus in ultraviolet uh, wavelengths. There is some compound on the atmosphere, especially concentrated in the cloud tops, uh, in the region of the upper clouds of Venus that are located about uh, 70 kilometers above the surface. Uh, so the, the cloud layer of Venus is at higher altitude as compared to the Earth, to the clouds of the Earth. Uh, we started to see things because precisely there is something absorbing in ultraviolet. For decades again, we have tried to discover the real nature of this absorber and no success for the moment. <laughs> yeah, well, the work continues, right? Uh, yes, yes. Of course, there has been there has been a lot of uh, candidates to to explain them. More recently, uh, one researcher from there, Sanjay Limay. I don't know if you if you know him. He suggested also that there could be a bacteria absorbing in ultraviolet wavelengths and maybe floating uh, uh, at the region of the clouds of Venus. That'd be very exciting. Oh yes, of, of course. Some of my colleagues who uh, who are working with numerical models to try to simulate these uh, absorption lines in the ultraviolet. They also told me, oh, this complicates a bit the puzzle because uh, uh, we don't know how we could try to uh, model bacteria in our numerical models. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that the only way of solving this mystery is trying to send some emissions able to get samples of the, of the gases of the atmosphere in some way to detect the kind of bacteria that might survive in those conditions and uh, absorbing ultraviolet. That, in the case of the Earth, we have some species that are able to do to do so. That sounds like an excellent candidate for uh, for a future mission to Venus. We'll come back to the future. I also want to mention that you're the co-discoverer of uh, of another peculiar feature: something in the clouds that appears to actually does remain stationary even as the winds blow. And you've got. Uh, actually an image of this, one of the gorgeous images that accompany this article. 
Uh, yeah, the, the stationary ball, it was a surprise. By many senses, uh, Venus has been a surprise for many things. You can't expect anything from the planet. Yeah, this was uh, this image uh, was uh, an infrared image taken at about uh, 10 microns. Let's say that these uh, mid-infrared wavelengths are the ones that uh, some drones, for example, uh, use to, to track, for example, the fires in forests on, uh, on the Earth. I mean, this wavelength is very special to track thermal heating. In this case, in the case of Venus, of the clouds. So we are seeing the, the temperature of, of the upper clouds of Venus in these wavelengths. This uh, instrument is, co- uh, is called bolometer. This image was the very first one that the, this bolometer uh, take uh, of Venus. Especially the this this was taking the exact date of the orbit insertion in uh, in December 2015. Mm. So this was the the one one of the main discoveries of Akatsuki just happened in the very first image of the of the observations. Well, I hope that people will take a look at this image. Um, it it is as I said in the September equinox 2019 edition of the Planetary Report, which is available to everybody, uh, free online, members of the Planetary Society, get the paper copy that I've got in front of me. I said it is full of beautiful images and some terrific graphics. Um, We're not going to be able to cover everything here, but there is one other series of four images that we just have to talk about. And it's not that they're just awe-inspiring. I actually find them rather creepy. Uh, (laughs) And I'm I, I, I bet you can guess which ones I'm talking about. It's the maelstrom at the south pole of Venus, and this is one very strange-looking feature. Polar yes. Okay, yeah. and, and these are from the Venus Express's uh, Vertice uh, instrument it's, uh, at the south pole. Curiously, this uh, phenomenon was uh, observed for the first time on the northern hemisphere by Pioneer Venus. Do we understand the dynamics of of a vortex like this, we seem to be finding such interesting things at the at the poles of a number of planets: Jupiter, Saturn, and and now Venus. Oh, <laughs> I must admit that not yet. <laughs> no, we, we no. It's I mean this this vortex is subject to uh, very fast changes in the morphology. I mean that these uh, the images that appear here are an example of that. Can have uh, like a circular shape, sometimes like a dipole, sometimes a tripole. Can change in just two days a lot. Yeah. Uh, in, in 48 hours, we have uh, many sequences of the uh, of this polar vortex taking with the uh, imaging spectrograph Virtis on Venus Express. Unfortunately, this this uh, instrument worked for only the first two years of the mission. But in those two years, we, we managed to take many many sequences of the of the motions of this uh, of this structure. It is funny because uh, one of the first work we published uh, about the dynamics of this uh, polar vortex uh, was published by my uh, my boss in Portugal, uh, David Luz, in Science. What he discovered is that the, uh, this polar vortex seems to reproduce the the motion of a merry-go-round. <laughs> so it was uh-huh. moving about itself at the same time moving. Uh, around the geographical pole. It is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yes. But uh, afterwards, uh, if I remember well, uh, a couple of years later, another colleague from Spain, Chiar Garate, she made a, a more extensive characterization of the dynamics, covering different dates uh, than David Luth, and she discovered something completely different. It seems that uh, the motion of the vortex is uh, rather chaotic. So the, the, the case of the merry-go-round seems to be a special case or maybe some kind of uh, a stage of the dynamics uh, but others is completely chaotic. And we can see also this polar vortex in the lower clouds, in the cloud tops, and even a bit, a bit above the cloud tops. 
the position of the polar vortex in the lower clouds was not exactly the same as the cloud tops. <laughs> so it seems that in the three-dimensional the three-dimensional structure seems to indicate that the polar vortex may be something closer to a heli- helicoid. Say that again. It's a closer to oh, yes. what? I mean, the, yeah, exactly. The position of the polar vortex at the cloud at the level of the cloud tops. I mean, seventy kilometers above the surface. Okay, and when you observe at the same moment uh, the position of the vortex at a lower altitude, about uh, fifty kilometers. The position of this uh, of the vortex at these two levels is not the same. There is some differences in the in the location. Mm. It, it seems that the polar vortex might be bended in, uh, in in altitude. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, I mean, we see images uh, sometimes of tornadoes here on Earth, uh, where the the neck of the tornado or where it is closest to the ground can be quite far from the top of the tornado, and that that sounds a little bit like what you're describing. We don't know how. There is like a kind of uh, coordination in the motions of the polar vortex in the north and the south. Wow. And this is something we are trying to uh, uh, confirm with volumeter observation from Akatsuki. So it is an ongoing work. We have already some indication from ground-based observations that the motion of the, of the polar vortex uh, of the North Pole and the South Pole or Venus uh, seems to be somewhat connected in some way because of the uh, general dynamics. And they have some coordinated motions uh, uh, between the north and the south. Of course, this, we need to confirm this, but this is what observation seems to indicate. You have provided, all in this conversation, and especially in the article, ample evidence that Venus is a very dynamic place and that we still have a lot to learn. What I mean, other than sending something to uh, look for that possible bacteria in the atmosphere, I mean, what would you like to see happen next? What missions do you think we should be sending to Venus uh, in the coming years? First, we need to we need to, uh, a mission to be approved. <laughs> that is being really hard. <laughs> the Indian Space Agency is is preparing a, a, a mission to be launched. I think that in four or five years they want to do so. I hope they are successful, of course. But to my opinion, of course, we, I will be really delighted uh, uh, delighted to to see a mission able to penetrate through the clouds and try to observe all the deep atmosphere of Venus that is completely unknown to us. I mean, that since the 80s, we don't have barely information about what is happening below the clouds. And that uh, information, in many senses, is critical to understand the atmospheric dynamics of Venus and also the thermal structure. Many people are obsessed to try to promote missions that are able to penetrate and go to the surface. So, yes, exploring the surface that is uh, like a, a black box to us uh, would be really great. But uh, of course, at the same time, we are also trying to think to uh, try to perform a more detailed character- global characterization, characterization of Venus. And the problem we have right now has to be, for example, the technique of radio occultation that uh, consists in uh, emitting uh, radio signals through the atmosphere of Venus. So the spacecraft uh, sends a, a radio signal. This radio signal is bended by the atmosphere and then uh, directed to the Earth, the, where we get the signal. Because of the angle that the signal is bended and also the signal is retarded, we can get information about the, the temperature of Venus, uh, the pressure of the atmosphere with a high precision. How about a balloon? Something that has been talked about for many years. Oh, I would say, what? Well, how about several balloons? <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe so, to go yeah. with those seven orbiters. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. 
to have several balloons, uh, like, the, like the Vega mission uh, in the 80s, being tracked and, and, and uh, measuring the speeds and other parameters. Yeah, that would be really great. And I don't think it's so expensive for a, for a mission. I know that there has been some proposals also about balloons, but I confess that right now uh, people are more uh, obsessed in trying to investigate the deeper atmosphere below the clouds and mm. also the, the, the surface. There could be some chances in the, in the next future, but uh, according to the efforts of the people uh, designing uh, new space missions, I will say that it will take yet a bit of time to see balloons again on, on Venus. Okay. So, yes, we can have balloons and the merry-go-round polar vortex. It could be uh, <laughs> really, really funny. On now, that would be quite a ride. I, I've got just one other question for you, if you don't mind my asking. Uh, of course. How does a Spaniard uh, end up living in Japan and uh, contributing to uh, space missions uh, underway there by the Japanese space agency, JAXA? I have to say that this is really different to compare to my previous experience in, in the European Space Agency. As you know, the European Space Agency is a, is a contribution from many countries. Here, JAXA, as NASA, is a national agency, especially where I work. You don't see so many foreigners. So, of course, the majority of, of the people working here are uh, Japanese people. In that sense, uh, I confess that it's kind of hard not only, of course, for me uh, to understand Japanese, for them also to speak English. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and yet, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, 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 there is, uh, they are trying to go ahead with an internationalization uh, plan uh, for the for the agency because right now at the moment there is uh, most of the work, a lot of the work that is done here, unless the, we are talking about combined mission from different countries, is done in Japanese. I live in another prefecture called uh, Kanagawa. Don't, not so many people speak English here. It is quite experience uh, for a foreigner. I, I recommend at least to, to, to learn a bit, to have some base, solid base of Japanese to start with and then start to work. Uh, people here work very hard. It is very difficult to find time to study Japanese. That is not the easiest language of the world, of course. And besides, you're, you're busy doing science. I, it does seem to put you in a good position as uh, international efforts go forward to, to study, uh, to, to undertake planetary science missions, and especially perhaps uh, uh, Venus missions. So, you know, congratulations on taking on this challenge. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and I will just say once again that uh, anybody can take a look at your uh, excellent article in the Planetary Report, Venus's Ocean of Air and Clouds, Deep Dynamic Currents Revealed by Venus Express and Akatsuki by uh, bar guest, Javier Peralta, who's uh, speaking to us from Japan, where he uh, has been doing this work for five years. Javier, thank you so much for being part of uh, Planetary Radio as well. Oh, thank you so much for giving the chance to explain it uh, a bit further. <laughs> Astrophysicist Javier Peralta studies planetary atmospheres, and as you've heard, especially the atmosphere of Venus, he's on the mission team for the Japanese space agency's Akatsuki currently orbiting that clouded mystery every 10 Earth days. He was awarded an international top young fellowship as part of his participation. Born in Spain, he's uh, been learning Japanese now, uh, learning it in situ for five years. I'll be right back with Bruce and this week's What's Up. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. 
Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is here. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, back to uh, entertain and inform us with uh, that night sky and all kinds of other good stuff. If you're getting this before November 11th, do not miss the rare transit of Mercury across the sun as Mercury passes between us and the sun on November 11th, and that will be starting at 1235 UTC and then ending at 1804 UTC in Pacific time, that's 435 in the morning, so we won't see it rise here on the west coast of North America. But we will see the last few hours of Mercury in front of the sun because it ends at 1004 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, There won't be another one until 2032. You will, however, need a telescope with proper safety filters, or there are all sorts of sites on the web covering it, including uh, spacecraft and space observing it and uh, observatories on Earth. So just do a search for that. And finally, and maybe I should have started with, this will be visible from South America, Africa, most of North America, and Europe. So have fun with that. If you miss that, or even if you don't, check out the evening sky. It's starting to become a planet party. Venus is joining Jupiter and Saturn, which have been hanging out in the southwest in the early evening for a long time. Venus now super bright, as always, down below bright Jupiter, far to its lower right. Trick is you'll need a clear view to the horizon, but don't worry if you don't see it. We will have it visiting for several months now. If you don't mind, I will tease something, even though it's not an absolutely sure thing. You remember, you know Jay Pasikoff, right? He, yes. Who is, yeah, not just an eclipse chaser, but not surprisingly, a transit chaser, micro eclipse chaser. <laughs> 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 I got to trademark that. Um, he is going to be at the Big Bear Solar Observatory, and we're going to try and connect as the big solar telescope there. Uh, as the sun with Mercury already transiting comes into view. And if this happens, we'll have that phone call on next week's show, which will be two days after the transit. So uh, so wish me luck. Wish us luck. Good luck. You know, I'll be looking at it through little tiny telescopes. Don't you care about me? <laughs> that's, that's okay. Jane knows more about this stuff than I do, and uh, that telescope's cooler, so go ahead. Yeah, it's big. And I, I they're good people up there anyway, so. Yep. All right, we move on to this week in space history. Carl Sagan was born this week in space history in 1934. He would have been 85, Mm -hmm. Carl Sagan, founder of the Planetary Society. And he did other stuff, I hear, too. Okay, we move on to random space fact. That belonged on some British television. You didn't really have the accent, but it was so sophisticated. It does raise the question whether one can sound sophisticated without a British accent. I'm not sure. (laughs) It's much harder. On to the fact, although Apollo 6, Apollo 6 experienced a couple engine failures and Apollo 13 had an engine shutdown during launch, both of them had the onboard computers compensate uh, using the other engines to get into a uh, Earth orbit. 
Side note, none of the 13 Saturn V launches resulted in payload or human loss or casualty. Um, pretty spiffy. I know you're a big Saturn V fan. It's a big rocket. I am. And it's just so appropriate because we just heard not long ago from Jason Davis about how Apollo 12 that we're about to celebrate the anniversary of, 50th anniversary, uh, was hit by lightning. and Twice. Yes. And that one was saved as well by, by a smart human on the ground who said, throw this switch. Okay. We move on to the trivia contest. And I asked you, who was the first person to eat in space? And I hear we had some differing <laughs> opinions. How'd we do, Matt? This is so interesting. We had a somewhat larger than normal response, maybe because people thought this would be so easy or that it was so easy to look up. I hate to say it, folks, but more than half of you got it wrong. Yes, John wrong. Glenn was the first American to eat in space, but it was da, 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 Yuri Gagarin, right? Indeed. Uh, he had uh, two tubes of pureed meat, tube of chocolate sauce to wash it down with. <laughs> and this came up recently on the show as well. When you, you asked what he wanted to eat, a couple of people remembered that question. Uh, <laughs> here's our winner, <laughs> Zachary Lupin. Zachary, who is from Iowa, back in Iowa now, I think, but he spent his summer as an intern at JPL working on the Europa Clipper mission. Hey, cool. Yeah, brought people over to the Planetary Society, got a nice tour, as I understand. He said, I was very surprised to learn that it was Yuri Gagarin. He says he loves listening from the heart of Iowa. Congratulations, Zachary. I think the confusion's because John Glenn brought a waiter, so it seemed... <laughs> <laughs> what a class act. Um, anyway, Zachary's going to get that new board game and the accompanying app called The Search for Planet X, which uh, very successfully completed its Kickstart campaign. Looks pretty cool. I know you played with the prototype that uh, was at the office. And uh, we'll put the link back up on the show page. You can get there from planetary.org slash radio. And he'll also get a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account. But wait, there's more. Oh, really? No way. John Barilli, this couldn't happen today because the tubes of paste were 5.6 ounces each, and we all know the TSA doesn't allow anything more than four <laughs> ounces to get through screening. <laughs> then he says, well, I'm good with the chocolate paste. I sure hope the Planetary Society doesn't serve any meat paste in a tube at its next big event. <laughs> really? We'll, we'll alert the chef to uh, change uh, change those plans, Okay. Mel Powell. Uh, so Yuri finished his meal and then left a vicious anonymous online review later about the quality of the dining experience under the <laughs> pseudonym Only Guy Been to Space. <laughs> a, a whole bunch of people talked about German Titoff, who was the next person. Hey, first to hurl space. in space. Exactly. That's because you talked about this recently. <laughs> yes. His claim to infamy. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie Gordon, she said John Glenn, and she knew that he had applesauce, but she said just hearing about this brings to mind children's snacks. Can you imagine the mess a toddler would make in zero gravity? <laughs> oh, yeah, I would not be good. Well, my kids were pretty neat, but but on average, yeah, that'd be Oh, uh, not mine. Not mine. Sorry. Sorry, girls. Uh, Manuel, our Manuel Baquer, he is in Portland, Oregon. Yes, he thought it was John Glenn. Wrong there, but he may be right about this. First non-human, he says, I suspect, 
was Fred Flintstone's friend, the Great Gazoo. <laughs> that was the Stone Age, right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess that would have to be before the others <laughs> in some universe. Finally, the in the Hanna-Barbera universe. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, this from Laura Weller in the UK. And I helped it out a little bit, Laura. I hope you don't mind. In space flew a man called John Glenn. He ate applesauce and flew back again. Space hinders your taste. So next time when faced with space snacks, perhaps add cayenne. (laughs) (laughs) Very clever. Thank you, Laura. Uh, While the the poet laureate has the week off. Uh, That's it. We're we're really done now. That was fun stuff. All right. uh, Move on to something that I, I think should be straightforward. What mission was the first launch of the Saturn V rocket? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have till the 13th, two days after the transit, Wednesday, the uh, 13th of November at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer and win yourself a Planetary Radio t-shirt that uh, comes from the Chop Shop store, of course, chopshopstore.com. You can see our our whole store there, the whole Planetary Society store, and a 200-point itelescope.net account. I'm sure they're going to have telescopes looking at the transit so you don't have to buy a thing because you operate the telescopes remotely. A 200-point account on iTelescope, that worldwide network of remotely operated telescopes. And that's enough about that. We're done. I'll add one little tidbit, which is uh, Thursday before the transit. I will have a blog online. If you're looking for more information, go to planetary.org about the transit. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about what food you'd like in a tube like a toothpaste tube. How do you say that if you don't call it a toothpaste tube? I don't know. Thank you, and good night. Bacon. Gotta be bacon paste, right? That's Bruce Betts. Uh, Thank you also for that update about your upcoming blog at planetary.org about the transit. There's so much more that he uh, keeps on giving us as the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who want to peek below those Venusian clouds. Learn how to become a member of the Society at planetary.org slash membership. Mark Hilverde is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan at Astro.